Hello, everyone, and welcome to the RICS podcast. My name is Anthony Parkinson. I'm a senior specialist in the property standards team at RICS. I'm also an RICS member, APC assessor and counsellor, and also a professional member of the First Tier Tribunal. I'm joined today by Alex Anderson, who's a partner at RPC. I've been fortunate to have worked with Alex on a number of RICS standards projects, um, and I asked Alex to speak to us today about the lawyer's view in terms of professional standards and, and what it means for professionals working across a range of sectors, both in the Spain profession, but equally across all professions. Thanks very much for joining us, Alex. I'm delighted to speak to you. Hello and welcome. Thank you. I've really enjoyed working with you on a, on a number of projects, actually. And what I wanted to start off was was finding out more about your role and about what you do and how you got to where you are. So, yep. yeah, really keen to hear. what What is it that you do? Right. So, um, I'm a partner at the law firm of RPC, and I've been here just over 25 years now. And during that time, a big focus of my practice has been on defending claims against surveyors. Obviously, we've had the fallout from the late 90s recession. We then had the credit crunch in 2008. And I say that there are three certainties of life, death, taxes, and when the market falls, there will be claims against surveyors, unfortunately. Mm. Um, So that's kept me fairly busy during my 25 years at RPC, acting for surveyors, sometimes on instruction through their insurers, sometimes instructed direct and dealing with all sorts of um, aspects of a surveyor's business from obviously survey and valuation had been particularly busy after a downturn, but also property management, rules of professional conduct, that sort of thing. And it's been through doing those claims, I first really got involved with the RICS when Dr. Una McDonald was doing her review post the credit crunch into the risk that was being faced by surveyors and the issues that they were having with insurance and as a result of being involved in that, and also the Market Liaison Group, which is a, a, a forum between the London market insurers and the RICS set up to help provide a, a platform for conversation between them and understanding about the, the views of both sides, as it were. And through those, I've then become involved with various working groups within the RICS, generally being the, the kind of sounding board for the, the players know what they have to do or the people, the experts um, will understand what needs to be done in terms of the standards to be expected. But sometimes it's just making sure that you're not creating risks or problems for surveyors with the guidance that you give in terms of requirements for compliance. So that's really the role that I've been doing with the RICS over the last probably about 10 years now. Brilliant. That's a really useful summary. Thank you. And clearly, you're the perfect person to speak to today about about a lawyer's view on on professional standards. So, did you say that you're generally representing surveyors? Yes, we. I only ever act for surveyors. I've never acted against the market. Okay, great. And and how does your work in the expert working groups help that? Or perhaps it's the other way around. Is it? I suppose I suppose your expertise is perfect for the expert working groups. But but how do you find them? Do you do you find them helpful in your day-to-day work? Uh, absolutely. It's a very much a learning curve both ways, as it were, in that I get to meet with subject matter experts who are the, the, the leading edge, as it were, of defining what competence and good conduct would be for a surveyor. I'm Obviously, I'm not a, a member of the RICS. I've never trained. So it gives me a unique opportunity to understand from people who are 
proper experts exactly how a surveyor or valuer would function undertaking a particular role and making sure that I understand what the particular issues are that they may face. And then I can bring my legal understanding to that in terms of, well, are you accepting too onerous an obligation there because it may well be used against you in the future? Or is this actually what, what really any, any competent surveyor should be doing? And also thinking about where risks and claims may come in due course so that the working group can be thinking about that whilst also setting the, the definitive standard for what might be expected from an RICS member. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and when, when you are defending a, a, a surveyor, are generally the claims that are coming about as a result of non-compliance with standards, or are they more about an issue that the client may have felt should have been picked up by the surveyor and, and wasn't? Yeah, I think it's a combination of the two. Uh, inevitably, you do get, and, and that was one of the main functions of the new home survey standard, was to make sure that right from the start, both sides of the transaction understand what they're going to get out of it. So the client doesn't think, well, this is going to be covered or that's going to be covered. And then when it's not, then they have cause for complaint. So it's really defining the service that will be provided by the surveyor and the surveyor knowing that if they provided that service in accordance with the standard, then there should be no basis for a complaint against them. You mm. do sometimes get situations where the, the guidance hasn't been followed. That's where it's very, very difficult to defend a claim because in the event that a complaint gets the stage of formal proceedings, a judge has absolutely no knowledge of, of how a surveyor should operate, what a reasonably competent surveyor should do. So the first thing they're going to do is look at where is the guidance that tells me what a competent surveyor should be doing. And if the defendant hasn't met the requirements of whatever guidance, whether it's RICS, whether it's an, a formal guidance note, whatever status it has, they will say, well, it seems to me that, that there must be a lack of care here because you haven't done what the RICS says you should do. So that yeah. is where, it, it, as I say, it's very difficult to defend a claim where it's simply a question of what was in scope or not. That's something that really should be sorted out right from the start. No, no surveyor should be doing or RICS member should be doing any work before they've properly agreed the scope with the client and confirmed it in their, their letter of engagement. But that's slightly different. That's a, an interpretation of what should or shouldn't have been done. It's not necessarily a lack of competence. It's just defining the scope. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the Home Survey Standard is a good example, isn't it? Because it's a framework for a service to be provided by a surveyor. It doesn't tell the surveyor how to do the job, as is the case for lots of standards. It's really just yes. how you treat your clients, having a standardized approach for terms of engagement, for qualifications for, in this case of the Home Survey Standard, levels of service. But I would imagine there are lots of other things that the courts would look at as well as just the standards. And I, and I guess in the case of the Home Survey Standard, it would be, you know, products that are available to support the standards, which surveyors may use, the surveyors' toolkit resources, which, again, surveyors may use or not. What weight would be put on sort of resources that complement the standard would is there would there be an expectation by the courts that if RICS produce a report template for example would there be an expectation that surveyors use that or would it be more about well it's available but it's not mandatory and, and in the case of the report templates they're not mandatory they're, they're a resource that surveyors can use if they wish 
but they're not necessary as part of the home survey standard. Would you encourage people to use the resources or would it be a case of if they're useful, use them, if they're not, don't? Yeah, so what you have to understand is the test that the court will apply when there's a claim against uh, a surveyor. And that's what was what they did, something that no reasonably competent person in their profession would do. So mm. it's not, obviously, the, the guidance notes are the primary source of direction, um, whether that's valuation methodologies or whatever it is that's directing how a, a surveyor should proceed. That's the first point. But the second is, if everyone in the profession or, or, or for example, the use of tech, as that becomes more prevalent, is it acceptable for one surveyor to be the outlier and not using means of preserving information, demonstrating that they've done the inspection, whether it could be having records of all the comparable evidence that they've relied upon, records of the damp readings they've taken, all, all of the technical stuff that a, a value or surveyor will do. Mm. Have they been keeping up with what the market is doing? And if not, then that could be held against them. But that doesn't mean that the day a new form is introduced, that has to be used. And as long as the information that is necessary to help the client understand the risks of or potential risks of, of buying a particular property, um, that should be sufficient because they will have discharged their duty to explain to the client what those risks are. And as long as it's put out in, a, in an understandable format, then I don't see that there should be any problem. There's, there's certainly no, it's only where things are mandatory that surveyors have to be very conscious of compliance with that, which is why whenever we're preparing a new guidance note, it's always important to look at the words where it says must. If you must do something, mm. then you must do it. <laughs> That's what it says. Um, whereas if you may, for example, you, you may want to use these, these different styles of reports, you may want to cover this, that, then that's not mandatory. And and whilst a claimant may say, well, you could have done, uh, unless they can establish that no reasonably competent surveyor would not have done or would have done if, if they were acting competently, then that that's, shouldn't be a problem for the surveyor. Okay. That's useful. And, and I think the way that we are rationalising how we produce standards into the two new headings, I think will help because at the minute we have quite a number of different titles for different types of standards that we produce. And and in the new world, we will have RICS professional standard, which will be mandatory or will certainly contain mandatory requirements. And there will be RICS practice information, which will be more aligned to the guidance notes, the information papers that we produce, which are designed to be helpful for for members and, and potentially consumers as well, but they're not, they don't contain mandatory provisions. And I think by having two titles for the two different types will help because it, it, it just sets it out very clearly what is meant, what, what does contain mandatory requirements and what doesn't. And standards like rules of conduct will always be mandatory, obviously, because they underpin everything that we do and and there will be occasions where it's just not appropriate to have mandatory requirements and I think that will work quite nicely as well. But in terms of the mandatory requirements, so you, you touched on this already, but the musts, so there are a lot of musts and must nots in the home survey standard as you know. And and I should say that this wasn't a document that I worked on. It was produced before I started working for RICS. So you have lots more insight than I do into the into the production and publication of this standard. But in terms of the shoulds, 
so we understand that you need to comply with the must because they're you know it's a mandatory statement. But in terms of the shoulds, are they also something that should be complied with, or is there more flexibility there? It suggests it by the name, but yeah, there, there is more flexibility there. But again, it, it comes back to this this test. I said, what would no reasonably competent surveyor? Uh, my, my, I sort of felt my function in that working group when we were putting together the home survey standard was every time we used the word must to say, is that really a must? Would mm. it be, would you be failing in terms of competence if you didn't do this? And and it was really helpful to have matter experts who could say, yes, actually, this is the side of the line that you really do have to do it. And if you don't, then frankly, that we, we don't think you would be reaching the level of competence that the client should be able to expect from a member of the RICS. So that was, as I say, my, my function, the kind of challenging is this must. Where it should, inevitably, you may get a, a claimant saying, well, it would be nice if you did. But if it's not mandatory, then it's it's much easier to explain. And obviously, as as each survey or valuation is prepared, the, the, the professional producing it is using their professional expertise and their market knowledge and they will be able to explain, well, I didn't think that was appropriate here, and it's not a must, so I didn't have to. Mm. Uh, and that's the kind of explanation that will help convince a court that they're actually, even though there may be an unhappiness on the part of the client, that doesn't actually amount to any breach of professional duty on the part of the surveyor. Yeah, absolutely. And and I guess with a framework such as the Home Survey Standard, there will potentially be more must because it's about you know making sure that the very clear guidelines that have been set out by the group are, are followed rather than, you know, the prescriptive approach that we previously had in some of the home survey products. Yeah. And having that should should significantly reduce the amount of, of problems or complaints that we have because, as I said, right from the start, everyone will know what they're going to get out of this product, whether it's level one, level two, level three survey. They will know what they're going to get and therefore it's far less likely that that they will be saying, well, you didn't do this because where it's a must, they will have done. And if it wasn't, then mm. then they may have done it or they won't, but that's not going to give or shouldn't give rise to a complaint. And that's the most important thing, really. It's just making sure that the client is comfortable with the product they've received, that it's appropriate to what they need, that it's addressed the, the issues that need to be addressed so that there's no reason to have any complaint. Absolutely. And I'd like to talk about competence because I think there are, having looked at, various standards that we've produced and worked on several others as well. I, I sometimes get questions from members. So we have a, a standards inbox where it's a sort of a, a, if you have any questions for RICS, then, then send them to us. And so a lot of those questions I see, especially when they're related to home survey and service charges, um, which, are, which are the areas that I've been working on. I've had a few emails from members saying, I'm a member of RICS, can I undertake home surveys? And my general response to that is that we should have a chat and that I'll speak to them and I will ask them, you know, I will happily have a chat with members because uh, I, it's always interesting to do so. But I think it's more than just being a member of a professional institution, isn't it? I mean, there, there are lots of questions that I would always ask. And if someone said, well, I've been working in commercial property management for the past 20 years, I've been a surveyor for 20 years, I want to set up my own firm. Can I do that? And the first answer is usually it depends, because it depends on your experience. And, I, and, and my view, 
not being a lawyer, my view is that competence needs to be defined by many factors. It might include qualifications, it might include experience, it might include CPD or other training that that people have done recently. I mean, it's just uh, far-reaching. It's certainly not possible for me to respond to someone and say, yes, I think you should... I think that you're competent to undertake home surveys. I think it's got to be a judgment call of that individual because unless you unless you assess what you're planning to undertake and whether you have the skills to be able to do that, then I just don't see how, you know, we at RICS can can make that decision. But it's down to the individual in my view. And I, I would ask all of those questions. I would be saying, Well, what's your experience? What's your qualifications? What have you done in the past? Is it relevant? Do you understand residential property? If you do, what types of residential properties do you understand? And I think it's really just about sticking to your area of expertise and not straying outside of that, unless you've got support to to do so. Because I imagine that that's where people can potentially trip up. Is that is that something that you found? Yes, absolutely. And and you're right. Competencies it's not just about well I've I've qualified I'm now Emrix so I can I can do anything within that sphere. It's about having the relevant experience and expertise. Um and that may be built up over years of experience or it may be actually with some of the new technology coming in it's actually having the ongoing and uh, the CPD and having being prepared to learn new technologies and new approaches so that you are in a position to be able to to provide the client with the advice that they need in a format they need. One of the most common issues that we get in terms of claims is is people going outside their area of competence uh, where they may have many, many years experience. I mean, as an example, I had one client who had many years of commercial experience, including dealing with assets where there was shop and, and residential above, so kind of mixed use as it were. And a client of his who'd given him a lot of work asked him to value a property which was purely residential, a large house in a very expensive area, completely out of his geographical location. And because he didn't want to say no to this client, he agreed to do it. But unfortunately, he didn't have the expertise and experience to be able to do that valuation. And it, and it went horribly wrong. And I think that's that's one of the things that people need to bear in mind is not just I am competent to do residential valuation, but am I competent to do residential valuation in this area? Um, there may be all sorts of specific issues that affect the ability to be able to give, uh, be competent or to be confident in your competence to do uh, a survey or valuation in a particular area or for a particular asset type. And obviously, it's very important to ensure you're comfortable so that you cannot be challenged in due course to say, well, actually, how many valuations have you done in this location? How many valuations of this asset type have you done? And it doesn't matter that you have had years of experience. If you can't answer that to say, well, I have I, I have very specific experience in particularly with more niche assets, then that does expose the risk of claims. Yeah, it, that is a very good point. And I think that it goes back to the fundamentals, really. And if we, if I was assessing an APC candidate who who wanted to become a chartered surveyor. I mean, it's a it's a textbook type question where you would say, you know, you work in this area. If someone in this area asked you to do the work, what would you say? And and the answer should always be, generally, should always be, well, I I would explain that it's not part of my expertise. It's outside of my expertise, and I would 
helpfully try and provide an alternative option for them. And I think that's probably the way to go. Would you Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And you're, in reality, you're probably doing the client a favour because the last thing you want is to have a go and get it wrong and end up in dispute with your client, ruin that relationship um, and potentially expose yourself to an expensive claim rather than simply saying, actually, I know someone who's better able to deal with this point. You maintain that relationship. Hopefully, the person you've referred them to doesn't mess it up. And uh, and that way, you can continue to do work with them rather than potentially exposing yourself to, to the risk of claims and a damaged relationship. Mm. It works really nicely in in the big firms, in the multidisciplinary firms. I think I can see how it can be more problematic for some of the smaller, for some of the smaller companies. Because if I if I think back to my days working for a big firm, then you know if a client asked me for something and I couldn't deliver it, well, I knew someone that could probably within the same firm, and and that's you know that's the way that lots of the big firms build business, isn't it, by referrals and. And, and working collaboratively across across different teams. And I think it works really well. But I can see how it could be problematic for a small firm or, or even a sole trader who's asked to do something and they think, well, we could probably do it, but but actually they, they don't really have that much experience in the area. I can see how someone could do it, but it's always just assessing your it's, it's assessing yourself, isn't it, and, and looking at what's going to be required. Yes, and, and I can understand from the, from the point of view of a, a small company or sole trader, you don't want to be turning away business. But at the same time, if you do get a claim come in and it costs a lot of money, then it's going to be, I mean, uh, there are already challenges in the professional indemnity market in terms of hardening rates. Absolutely. But with yeah. a negative claims record, you're going to find it that much harder to get insurance. And actually, that's one of the biggest challenges for the smaller practices so infinitely mm. better to speak to other smaller practices in the area and see if you can fit bit up a referral network um, so that you can work collaboratively on that than risk your PI and not being able to continue to do business in the event a claim comes in. Yeah, exactly. It's very good. That's very good advice. And yeah, you as you say, you can build a network with, with other companies. You don't have to try and be the, the person that does everything for everyone, do you? But there's certainly potential to do that. Yeah, very good advice. And what do you come across repeatedly that you think, I wish I had a magic wand to solve this? Um, <laughs> when I'm thinking about when you're defending surveyors. Is there, is there something that comes across, some comes up frequently that seems to be a problem but could easily, that could be fixed? Yes. I, I, well, I'd say there were three key areas. One was the one we'd already discussed working outside your area of competence, whether that's geographical or asset type. The second one is not agreeing your terms and conditions up front with your client. And that may mean that you haven't agreed the scope or or sometimes you have agreed the scope and then you agree to change it and you haven't properly recorded it in your engagement letter. And not agreeing your terms and conditions because you should always be looking for ways to try and limit your liability wherever appropriate and that may be by the incorporation of terms that will protect your position in the event there is a dispute. So making sure you have got the scope of your retainer and the terms agreed before you even do the work is really important. That's the one thing so many people have said, oh, I really should have done that sooner. Yes, absolutely. Make sure that's done up front. And the third point is not keeping proper records. And it is virtually impossible to defend a claim for professional negligence where you have no proper records to show that, for example, severe 
did did do their damp meter readings, did gather their appropriate comparable evidence, did inspect a particular area or, or was specifically asked not to inspect it or it wasn't, for example, during COVID lockdown where you couldn't open things up. And if that's not recorded in the notes, so it's clear what was or wasn't done, then it's really difficult because a judge is going to say, well, they're saying you didn't do this and you've got no documentary records to say that you did. And of course, you're going to say in your evidence, well, I'm sure I did, but can you really be sure, mm. particularly if this was service was provided five, six, seven years ago, however long it was. So without those documentary records, it really is very difficult to be able to defend a claim. And insurers will generally not even try. They'll say, we need to settle this straight away, which I understand can be very galling for the professional person, particularly if they've got a sizable excess that they'll have to pay in response to that claim. But really, from insurer's point of view, they know that it's going to be almost impossible to persuade a court that all the relevant information was gathered and checked to ensure that the survey was done correctly if there's just nothing in terms of paperwork to prove it. Okay. Yeah, that's a very good point because I'm sure that lots of surveyors are very much focused on the practical day-to-day job and could certainly improve in some cases in terms of the in terms of the admin but the terms are crucial aren't they because if if you don't tell the client what you're going to provide for the fee that you're quoting then the client could all there's always potential for the client to come back and say well i expected you to do this why didn't you do it and if there's no document setting out what you are doing and what you're not doing what the surveyor is doing and what the surveyor's not doing then there's always going to be potential for disagreement isn't there absolutely And generally, the courts will side with the client because the client will say, this is what I thought they were going to do. And if you as the professional person have not recorded what you're going to do, then the courts will invariably say, well, that was down to you. And if you haven't recorded it, I will accept what they're saying. Yeah. So would it be one of the first documents that would be looked at if if a client made a complaint and said, I I expected this and it didn't get delivered? Would Absolutely. That is the very first point of, of call, whether it's a lawyer looking at it to see if there's a claim, whether it's someone defending a claim, whether it's a court or a tribunal of any kind. The first place they look is the contract. Okay, that makes sense. And that, that would be in, in, in many cases across many sectors, wouldn't it? Yes, absolutely. If, if there's a contract, yeah. And Alex, in terms of the, the records that surveyors need to keep, obviously the report is one part of the jigsaw, isn't it? And I think there are all sorts of other records. I'm sure that you have a better sort of feel for this than, than I do, having, having seen the records that have been kept by surveyors. But if, for example, a surveyor inspected a property, how important is it that they keep comprehensive site notes? And by site notes, I mean written down comments about the survey, about the inspection, because I've, I've seen a prevalence in people, you know, focusing very much on photographs. And I know that photographs are really important. People take hundreds of photographs when they're inspecting a property. But my view or my subject, my thought is that for photographs, you know, a picture page is out of words, but, but actually in some cases you need to write down what the issue is. So if you were, so if I was a surveyor walking around the property and I noticed an issue with a crack in a wall, I wouldn't just take a photograph of it. I, prob- I probably would take a photograph of it, but I would also record the crack, the shape, the direction, the width, and, and all sorts of other characteristics of that. So how important is it that people make a written record of notes as well as just photographs? It, it is very important because 
again, it's demonstrating that the, the professional is exercising skill and care in their assessment of any potential issues with the property. So, for example, that example you've given the, the, the crack, you could take a photo of it, but what is going to be far more powerful is if you measured it and you've written down your measurements, or, or maybe you take a photo of it with a ruler so you can see how, how large the crack is and the location of it. And But the, the more evidence you have to show the thoroughness of the job that you've done in terms of an inspection, the better that's going to be. The more a judge is going to say, or, or any arbitrator is going to say, yes, they have clearly taken care about what they're doing. And in this day and age, when you can upload files onto the cloud or whatever. It's not like you're having to store enormous amounts of paper in some storage facility somewhere. There is no real reason why you couldn't keep that information, all of the information upon which you based your decision to show that you were exercising and also demonstrating where, for example, you're working up evaluation, how, how you worked that out, not simply keeping 100 comps on the file, but actually where you've adjusted them you thought might be different about the subject property, why you thought it might be worth more or less than another property in the same in, in the similar location, that sort of thing. Just the more evidence you've got to show that you're really applying your mind to the task in hand to ensure you're giving the client the advice they need, then the, the, the much the much stronger position you will be in the event that there is any kind of complaint or indeed a claim in due course. Yeah, that's a very that's a very good point because I imagine that everything is up for grabs at the at the point at which a claim is made or it proceeds or or it needs to be defended. Is that right? Are all the records sort of needing to be produced at that point? Yes. Yeah, so you will have to you will have an obligation as part of disclosure to disclose every document that you wish to rely on, but also any document that undermines your case. And that is an obligation of anyone involved in proceedings. But there's also an earlier point is if a client writes to you and says, I, I think you haven't done a proper job here, if you can produce a lot of documentation to show, well, actually, I did do a proper job, I have worked on this, then it's less likely that you're going to get to the position of having a claim because they can see that you have been careful in what you've done and they're less likely to take it from the stage of a complaint to a claim to anyone having to consider disclosure of documents. And I suppose actually what might the surveyor may be able to to you know deal with the situation there and then. So if a, a client buys a property and says that this is an issue, you should have pointed it out, it should have been highlighted, I paid you to do a survey. Why didn't you tell me? And if the if the surveyor has comprehensive notes and photographs backing his or her position up, then they can deal with it there and then, I would have thought. Yes, um, that that is the ideal, obviously, to to avoid any lawyers ever getting involved at all. Um, and the more comprehensive your records are to show that you did observe something, or indeed there was no defect to be observed at the time of the inspection. I mean, for example, if they did a survey in in midsummer and there's absolutely no sign of any damp, and the client finally completes in December and uh, come February, like the last February we've had, it was very wet. Mm -hmm. They're saying, well, there's yeah. this problem with damp. If you've got the damp meter records and if you've got the photographs and you've got the notes to show that you did inspect and there were no problems, then it's far less likely that the client is going to continue with the claim. And certainly if they go to a lawyer, the lawyer will say, well, I don't think you have good prospects here because it's clear they have all this evidence to show at least at the time the survey was undertaken, there wasn't a problem. 
And it's a good point on the valuation side because often, often when valuations are produced, there's a figure and there's some, you know, there's some some narrative around that. But it, in, in in most cases, there isn't. Well, in some cases, there isn't a sort of a, an in depth explanation of how the surveyor or the valuer came to their final value by, you know, reviewing comparables. In the case of a residential comparable valuation and, and adjusting them accordingly. So. Yeah, I can see how that would be really helpful and, and may actually answer a lot of questions that may be, may be arising out of evaluation. So, yeah. No, yeah. And I appreciate that if, if you're in the kind of the volume business where you have to churn through or you have to cover a lot of valuations in a short period of time just to keep going, then having to sit down and do a detailed explanation of each and every comparable you've looked at may be quite time consuming and not economic, but it could simply be if you put a tick on the ones that you relied on across on the ones you didn't and very short tabulated form, any particular differences or, or factors you took into account, at least that will give you an aid memoir when and if you do have to come back and review the valuation as to what you were thinking so that you can justify the approach you took to adjusting the price by reference to the, the comparable evidence that you had. Mm. It's tricky to talk about, isn't it? It's a tricky. It's tricky to think about, actually, because... None of us go into the business of any profession to be sued or to be criticised yeah. or to do it or to perform badly. Really, I mean, we're all absolutely. We all want to do a good job, don't we? Generally, um, and of course, we have bad days. Of course, mistakes happen. But you know, the the points that you're making about record keeping and just having a backup, it's all really helpful because you can't you can't maintain a record of everything in your head. And even if you can, it's not helpful because it's it's a biased it's a biased record of events. And I think if you've got a record of everything, object sort of a record of the thought process, the, a record of the observations that you made as part of your work, then I would have thought that would be a, a great source of defence when something comes up that really contradicts what 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 the member might have undertaken. So yeah, I completely get that. I I get that it's you know, sometimes never sees the light of day. But when it does, it's really important that it's there, isn't it? Absolutely. I wanted to quickly talk about social media, because I see, you know, given the job that I do, I I see a lot of social media posts within open groups that are accessible by the public, within closed groups that are accessible by surveyors or, or others. And when I see social media posts, I, 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 always, I always learn something from them. But I wonder what, something that I've always wondered is whether the courts would rely on, on information that's posted in a, in a group, in a closed group, in an open group. Would, it, would that be potentially evidence if it, if it was relevant to a case that was been pursued? Yes. Uh, any document that's created that has relevance to um, the issues in a case is disclosable. Mm. As I've said, you have to disclose anything that supports your case, but also anything that harms it. And if it is publicly accessible so that the, the person on the other side, usually the claimant, can find it, they can put it in front of a court and a judge will have to decide what weight they give to it. And it may be that they see the comment as an off the cuff, not really demonstrating any particular significance to the issues in the case. But if it's mm. directly relevant, maybe it's opining on a valuation that doesn't match with the valuation that's subsequently given or 
or something that indicates that maybe full care hasn't been taken over the preparation mm. of, of the, the work, whether it was a survey evaluation, whatever it was, then that's clearly not going to be helpful. So careful thought must be given to a, a pining on anything that relates to a specific instruction on social media in case it does then become disclosable. Um, in any subsequent claim. But I think the thing with social media, it's far more relevant in terms of the code of conduct, um, which has recently been updated, and being aware of what your general responsibilities are as a member of the RICS and the penalties that, that could fall if you step on the wrong side of the line and put out content that could be cause for criticism. And, and that, in a way, is, is a greater risk for members, is ensuring that you keep in mind your obligations under the Code of Conduct when addressing people through social media. And even that's in a kind of personal post. If you can be identified as a member of the RICS, then that can a attract a conduct issue if you say something untoward. Yeah. And I think that people are much freer with what they say within closed groups because I suppose if there are if there are groups for a particular sector and the people assume that it's only those within that sector that are, that are that are posting, then I think people are much more likely to be sort of more open and and less restrained in what they say. But I would imagine that there's always potential for those types of posts to come to light equally, because if if a consumer would like to pursue a surveyor, then in many cases they may look for they may look for evidence and if it's available then that that there's potential for that to be used isn't there yes absolutely and you have to be aware that even if you share something in a closed group another member of that closed group may share it externally mm. and someone could do a google search and and find it um particularly if they're a a, a very um, belligerent claimant they probably are spending quite a lot of time online trying to find information about the person about whom they're making a complaint so you have to be aware of where that information could end up um, and be very cautious in terms of particularly where you're, you're talking about a specific instructional client, ensuring that that couldn't cause you problems. So what would your advice be? What if some, So if a surveyor had potentially had a sort of a bad day and they were defending a claim, you know, should they, should they be seeking the views of their peers or colleagues or network in terms of what they do or should they sort of disguise <laughs> or try to be anonymous or yes a, a friend of mine has this problem um yes I, I would i would advise against it online because you simply don't know where that information is going to go I and mean, of course you can speak to colleagues whether uh, whether it's kind of people within your same organization or if you're sole trader then speaking to other people within the profession whom you know but i would avoid doing anything online because of the risk of that popping up um, particularly if you're describing the circumstances of a claim and saying, I think this was right, but what do you reckon? That's the last thing you want. And anyway, whoever's defending that claim, they will instruct an expert on your behalf who, will, who will, you will be able to have those conversations with. So I would certainly, if you're getting into the territory of a complaint or a claim, the less said, the better. Okay. That's really helpful. And I'm not suggesting that people don't post on social media. Obviously, it's a very important part of lots of our jobs and lots of really important information is shared online. But it's just thinking about the point, isn't it, that that we, we hope never to be sued. We hope never to have to defend a claim. But 
if we do, it's just been it's just been careful about it and just not opening yourself up to more potential issues by trying to trying to deal with it because it's an awful situation to have to deal with when someone's potentially criticizing something that 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 someone has done it's it's not it's an awful feeling and it's easy to rely on people to sort of tell us that it's going to be all right and in, in many cases it will be all right but it's just being mindful of the fact that anything that is out in the public domain may be used against that person isn't it yes absolutely well, great. Thank you very much, Alex. I've, I've, I've really enjoyed talking to you today, as I always do. It's been really helpful. And it, and it, is, it, it is really helpful insight. I can see how it's important for us to use professionals from different sectors on expert working groups, because it shouldn't be. And I don't think it's ever been about surveyors just writing standards for surveyors. But unless we, unless we involve other sectors, so, you know, architects, lawyers, environmental health officers. There's all sorts of different types of people that we include on the expert working groups. And we do that consciously because it's really important that it's not just about, you know, very detailed technical stuff that we know, but, you know, not everyone else does. And it's really about making sure that we have a cross range of expertise and different views as well. So clearly your views around the work that you're doing is going to be very different to that of a surveyor and I think it's really helpful and um, I'm really grateful for for all of the work that you do for RICS but also for speaking to me today so thank you very much. You're very welcome Anthony it's it's always good to talk. Yeah it's great to speak thank you Alex and also for for the listeners today I hope you found this useful what I'd really like to flag for, for you all is is the importance of of the standards that we produce you're probably thinking, well, I would say that, wouldn't I? Because I, I work in the standards team, but they are vitally important, both the standards that are mandatory for members, but also the, the, the standards that are, that are more about information for members, as well as candidates and as well as students. As an APC assessor, I see lots of candidates coming through the process and, and they know their stuff. And it's really important that as RACS members that we continue to know our stuff throughout our career. So it's really important that we are you know, keeping abreast with current and upcoming standards and that we also contribute to them. So I would really encourage everyone to keep an eye out for consultations that we run, to contribute to the consultations, to put your name forward for expert working groups, to get involved in the conversations through the My RICS community, and to keep listening to the podcast because there are a variety of themes and we're always Really keen to hear what you'd like us like to hear us talk about, but I hope you got something from this session today. So thank you everyone. Hope you found it useful and until next time, it's bye from me. Bye.